If only I could eliminate these distractions and get back to my writing. If you suffer from a similar affliction, you'll probably enjoy episode 7 of Prelude to a Screen. Silent screams bounce around my head like an impending storm, brewing into a force that will escape in a wild dance of chaos and be lost forever if I don't stop to write them down. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Prelude to a Scream, podcast fiction by Mark Leslie. This episode is going to feature the short story Distractions, which is a startling look at how far one writer goes in order to eliminate the distractions in his life. It's perhaps a cautionary tale of one person taking the advice in a self-help book just a little bit too far. So without further ado, here is Distractions by Mark Leslie. Maxwell wasn't surprised when the rubber ball smashed through the window and rolled to a stop near his feet. In fact, he hardly flinched as the shards of glass flew through the air, some of them nesting in his blonde curly locks. He'd known it was only a matter of time before the ball being bounced against the side of the house straight just long enough to hit the window. Maxwell looked down at the signed copy of Andy Robinson's latest self-help bestseller, Maxim Power 2, Getting Through Distractions. Andy's proud, smiling face, with his unique trademark oversized cleft chin and dimples on the cover, brought the book's first words to his mind. Distraction should be seen as evil. Calmly, Maxwell picked up the ball and walked out of the study. The ball was made of Indian rubber, warm and hard with just a little give as he pressed his thumb into it. Tossing the ball into the air and catching it with the same hand, he headed down the hall on his way to the door. The packed bookshelf at the end of the hall caught his eye as it often did. He paused to run the tips of his fingers across the spines of the books. His fingers stopped on a book with golden lettering down the spine reading The Brazen Herald. He pulled the book off the shelf, admiring the cover lettering, the artwork, the dark-winged dragon silhouette against a purple-red sky, and below that, a blue-black sea, and the lone figure standing in the foreground on the edge of the cliff, mostly in silhouette, the blue and yellow tunic showing the glinting shine of sword in hand. Turning the hardcover book around, he admired the black-and-white photo on the back, how the smiling face captured there resembled him, yet was different. A fuller head of hair, the confident smile of an author still producing. Then he read the text. Maxwell Bronte lives with his wife Doris in Arizona, and is hard at work on his next novel, furthering the chronicles of Sebastian Eldridge. He smiled and fondly remembered those days. The novel had been praised and cheered, He'd been the talk of the town, described as that up-and-coming fantasy writer from the Southwest, the way that King was the horror writer from New England. He'd been interviewed and featured in all the major science fiction and fantasy journals. That, of course, had been five years ago. He still hadn't finished the follow-up novel about Sebastian Eldritch, the one he'd been planning on calling Herald in Peril. No. Between that first blockbuster novel and now, he'd gone through two job changes, the loss of his father, a near divorce, and a house fire. Getting back to working on his novel had not been a priority during those changes. The world around you should decide your priorities for you. Only you can do that. Until he discovered Andy Robinson, that was, and learned that all of it, all that change, turmoil, and upset, was really nothing more than distractions that had been getting in the way of fulfilling his destiny. 
He'd bumped into Andy at RockCon, a science fiction convention in Little Rock, just a few months ago. Maxwell was still touring the conventions, riding on his one past publishing success and hoping to revitalize his career by being around other successful authors. He'd ended up reminding himself of a certain television star from 20 years ago whose sole quest seemed to be to work non-stop at rallying fans to help bring back Starship Academy, despite the fact that most of the other main cast members from that series had either all but disappeared from acting or had died. Minutes after making that realization, and wondering if he would be doing this for another 15 years, he'd gotten off the elevator at the wrong floor, where he'd stumbled into a business leader's convention, and Andy Robinson, the convention's main speaker. Across from the elevators and just outside the lecture room, Andy was involved in an animated discussion with a few men in suits. The way he moved, gestured, the passion and excitement in his voice caught Maxwell's attention immediately. Andy actually reminded Maxwell of a character in his novel, the one faithful companion of Sebastian Eldritch, Marvis Cranley, who was a sometimes sidekick, a sometimes court gesture, and a full-time spiritual advisor. He started watching Andy because of this fascinating parallel, but then continued watching him because he was such a captivating speaker. When Andy and the two men, who were also listening to him with rapt attention, moved down the hall, Maxwell spotted the poster board bearing Andy's grin and a table covered with the man's motivational books. The phone began to ring, bringing him out of his silent reminiscence. Maxwell turned and regarded the phone answering machine and key cup on the small table near the front door. You can only deal with one distraction at a time. Don't let the game up on He slid the novel back into place on the shelf between The Armies of Daylight by Barbara Hambly and Frostwing by Richard A. Knack, two of his favorite fantasy authors. The answering machine picked up after the second ring. Hi, sweetie, his mother's voice, slightly tinny coming through the answering machine speaker, filled the hallway. I'm just worried because I haven't heard from you in a couple of days. Call me. Damn woman, he thought, continuing his journey down the hallway, making her call twice a week as if there were anything important to discuss that often. What a waste of time. Without breaking stride, Maxwell ripped the phone cord out of the wall and carried the unit out the door. In the entranceway, he lifted the lid off the trash can and dropped the phone inside. I'm busy, Mom, he said as he snuggled the lid back into place. I'll deal with you later. Put aside those extra distractions until you have time to deal with them. Maxwell then rounded the house. In the front yard, a red-haired kid with a speckling of freckles across his nose stood waving his arms in the air. It was his neighbor's kid, Danny. "'Sorry, Mr. Bronte. I'm so sorry.' Reaching the boy, Maxwell stopped. "'Danny, what did I say about throwing the ball against the side of my house?' Danny didn't answer. "'Danny, what did I say?' The boy shifted his left foot in front of his right one, softly digging his toe into the grass as he looked up. "'You said not to.' "'Not to what?' "'Not to throw the ball against the house because it distracts you when you're—' "'That's right,' Maxwell said, cutting the child off. "'And you disobeyed me again.' "'I'm sorry, Mr. Bronte. I'm sorry. Can I have my ball back?' "'As Maxwell stood there looking at the boy, "'he was reminded of the fact that this distraction was taking up even more of his time. "'Andy Robinson's smooth, calm voice of reason filled his head. "'Distractions are anti-trash. You must give yourself trash.' By eliminating distraction. Eliminate distraction, Maxwell mumbled. You want your ball? Here. He drew his arm back, and with that, the boy immediately stopped sobbing. He started to stumble backwards, his wide eyes never leaving the ball, as Maxwell followed through on his pitch and sent the ball straight at the boy's head. 
The ball bounced off the boy's forehead, the shock more than anything dropping him to the ground on his backside. And stay out of my yard! The boy turned, scrambled forward about a foot on his hands and knees, then got to his feet and ran across the yard to the neighbor's house. After watching the boy run inside and hearing the satisfying slam of the door, Maxwell stood there a moment, taking in a breath of fresh air, carried in on a dry, warm desert wind. Then he headed back into the house. "'Oh, great,' he said, noticing the grass stains on his hand that must have come from the ball. "'Running out of time here.' Andy's voice came to him again. "'Time is your friend, not your enemy. Embrace it. Make the most of it.' He glanced at his watch as he headed toward the bathroom. He only got one day off a week to work on his writing, and so far he'd been wasting it with minor distractions. But as he now knew, "'There is no such thing as a minor distraction.' Every single distraction is evil. It must be dealt with, where they will soon stop and run your life. For the past five years, he'd let distractions get in his way. They'd stockpiled in front of him, preventing him from getting anything accomplished. Job interviews, funerals, marriage counselors, distractions with capital letters, all of them, preventing him from getting down to his novel. But not anymore. Not with the sound words of Andy Robinson to inspire him along. When Maxwell got to the washroom, he turned on the water, not bothering to wait for the hot water to start coming out. No, that would be a waste of time. He smiled at himself in the mirror as he washed his hands. The new Maxwell smiled back at him. Say goodbye to the you that says, Perhaps I'll do it later. And say hello to the you that says, I want it right now. The new Maxwell didn't procrastinate and thought of time as his best friend, because time was too powerful to work against Hey, that was a good one. He just made that up on his own. Not only was Maxwell taking charge of his life, but he was able to rework Andy's strong and powerful words into his own life. After all, it was Andy who said, Don't just follow these tips blindly. Take them. Use them as your own. And they will evolve into your own words, your own tips, your own maxims. Still smiling, Maxwell felt something soft and furry rubbing up against his leg. He looked down at an orange tabby, Smuckers, as it purred and wound back and forth between his legs. Maxwell's smile began to falter as it continued this pattern without pause, and he knew it wouldn't stop until the animal was either fed or petted or perhaps both. In any case, it was just another distraction. Still smiling, Maxwell scooped the tabby up, carried it to the toilet, and forced its head under the water. Within a couple of minutes, the struggling was over, and he set the toilet lid back down, the cat's orange tail still sticking out. He'd been surprised that the feline hadn't put up more of a fight. Soon he would have to clean the body out of there. But he couldn't worry about that now. He had to remain focused on the job at hand. Prioritize What is important? What can wait? As he washed his hands, Maxwell became aware of a stinging sensation on his left arm. He turned his wrist over and discovered that the cat must have indeed fought back at least a little. There on his skin was a puffed-up red scratch. The center of the scratch had opened and a thin line of blood leaked out. Not another distraction, Maxwell mumbled, opening up the medicine cabinet. Unable to find any bandages, he stormed out into the hallway. The doorbell rang. Maxwell turned towards the door. On the other side of the screen door stood his neighbor, Gus Sherrington. Gus looked like a much older version of his son, Danny, complete with a thick patch of freckles across his nose. But his red hair had receded to nothing more than a patch of wispy tufts a few inches above each ear. The way he was breathing in big dramatic gasps and the look on the man's face suggested that Gus was none too happy that Maxwell had been to son with the Indian rubber ball. 
Gus raised a baseball bat where Maxwell could see it. Get your ass out here, he screamed through the door. I'll kick your ass down the fucking street for touching my boy. Distractions of a wave pounding themselves, becoming more than the sum of their parts. No kidding, Maxwell mumbled, stepping over to the closet. He opened the closet door and reached in for the shotgun. Eliminating distractions at any cost is often your only solution. Get your ass out here, Gus yelled again, unable to see Maxwell checking to ensure the gun was loaded behind the cover of the closet door. I said, Gus started to say, but stopped as Maxwell closed the closet door and revealed the gun. Gus's eyes were suddenly as wide as his son's had been when he knew he was going to be getting his ball back the fast and hard way. Stepping forward and raising the shotgun to chest level, Maxwell fired. The glass and screen shattered in an explosive blast, and Gus was knocked backward off his feet, almost as much from the sound as from the force hitting him in the chest. Maxwell stepped forward, looking at the man lying on the sidewalk on his back. His eyes, wide and terrified, were fixed on Maxwell. His chest, now hitching even more dramatically than before, was pretty much a stewed-up mess of blood, skin, pellets, and the remains of his yellow T-shirt. His right hand still clutched the baseball bat, and his left hand pawed at the grass, as if it alone could drag him away from further pain. Distractions are on the whole before you stop being distracted by them. Could that be the case now? Certainly, Gus wasn't a distraction any longer. He should let him be. Maxwell turned and headed back down the hallway. A trickle of blood leaked down his forehead. He figured it must be a cut from the glass, either from the screen door just now or the glass that flew through the air when the ball came through his window. Whatever it had been, it signaled the need for more bandages. He stormed toward the master bedroom. Doris, where the... He paused at the bedroom door. His wife was lying on the floor, her dead hand still clutching the vacuum cleaner wand. Oh, yeah, Maxwell muttered, remembering. His wife had had the nerve to start vacuuming when she knew he had a lot of work to get done. What a stupid thing to do. He was going to miss her. Strange how quickly he'd forgotten about killing her. Once you eliminate a distraction, you should forget that it ever existed, or else it will consume your mind and your time. That is why distractions are so evil. That is why they must be vanished. He decided enough time had been wasted. Without Doris around to help find the bandages, he'd probably never locate them. Instead, he headed back to his den. He sat in front of the computer, smiled as he propped the shotgun against the desk, and lifted his coffee, now cool, to his lips, and relished in the silence of the afternoon. Now that the distractions were removed, he could get some work done. After all, there was only so much time to write. Off in the distance... A wailing siren started to lurk up out of the silence. Unless it pertains to you directly, ignore anything that threatens to distract you. Deal with it only when it begins to directly interfere with your goal. Maxwell sent a sideways glance at the shotgun propped up against his desk, and then typed, figuring he could at least finish his next paragraph before the police car reached his house. As he typed, Andy Robinson's smiling face watched him proudly from the cover of the book. And that was the story Distractions by Mark Leslie, and that's me. Distractions was first published in the World Fantasy Con 2001 CD-ROM. This was edited by Nancy Kilpatrick uh, back in, 
I guess late 2000, 2001, Nancy had sent a communication to uh, various Canadian writers of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. She was looking for submissions to the CD-ROM that was given out at uh, World Fantasy Con, uh, which was held in Montreal that year. And uh, and it was a retrospective look at the past World Fantasy Cons and themes, and it was to feature Canadian talent. So my theme um, was Fantasy Writers of the Southwest, uh, which is basically my main character happened to be a fantasy writer living in the Southwest. And I was, uh, I think obviously, I was exploring the concept of a writer with too many distractions to successfully continue his career, which happens to all of us. Um, But I thought I would um, sort of take a tongue-in-cheek look at um, the popularity of self-help books. And I've been a bookseller for uh, almost 20 years now. And one of the things that I've always found very amusing are the way that people embrace self-help books as if this one book has all the answers that you could ever possibly need. And and so I thought maybe let's take a slightly unstable mind, uh, apply um, uh, a very popular uh, self-help book to it. Um, not sure if you can see the, you know, the sort of references to a um, uh, Anthony Robbins uh, type character here, um, someone who has a very popular message for people. But that's really that sort of what I was trying to uh, trying to refer to in uh in the author that I use of the self help book and of course the the main character takes it just a little bit too far when it comes to eliminating distractions for that reason in the printed version of the story um the little snippets of uh, excerpts from the self help book uh, appear in italics so it's very obvious to the reader that that's what's going through our main character's mind of course in the audio version it's hard to differentiate that, which is why I attempted to use a sound effect. I'm not so proud of my um, amateurish uh, effect with the sound effect, uh, but I didn't want to spend too much more time worrying about that. I just wanted to um, set those parts off just a little bit so you know that that's uh, a voice that he hears in his head, uh, and then continue on with the story. Distractions was reprinted in 2004 in my book One Hand Screaming. If you like the tale... um, I'd ask you to maybe consider checking out more of my fiction or even better yet going on to an online bookseller like Amazon or chapters.indigo.ca and posting a review about how much you like the story. That's all I'm asking. Um, Other than that, uh, thanks so much for joining me here for Episode 7 of Prelude to a Scream. I hope you come back for Episode 8 and have a wonderful day. You've been listening to Prelude to a Scream, podcast fiction by Mark Leslie. This podcast has been released under a Creative Commons 2.0 non-commercial no derivatives license, which basically means feel free to copy it as many times as you want and give it to as many thousands of people you can. Music has been provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful day.